in Romans chapter 9, Paul is wrestling with the unbelief of the Jewish people. And he is deeply concerned about that. He himself is a Jew. And so he's talking about his own countrymen. He has a great personal concern for them, so much so that he says in Romans 9, 3, that I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, for the sake of the Israelites. But it moves beyond just a personal concern for Paul. It's also a theological concern because Paul it wants to understand how the word of God, the promise of God, can be found faithful when the great majority of Israelites in his day were not believing the gospel. And so he affirms very strongly in verse number six that God's word has not failed. So the problem with many of these Israelite Jewish people not believing, Paul says the problem is not with the word of God. The problem is not with the promise of God. The problem is not with the faithfulness of God. God's word has not failed. Well, how can that be, Paul? How is it that God's word can still be found faithful when it seems like many, many of his chosen people, the Israelites, are going to be lost and eternally condemned if your gospel is true, that the only way to salvation in God the Father is through the Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in him. If that's the only way to God, and many, many Jews do not believe in Jesus, God the Son, as their Messiah and Savior, and in, according to the gospel, then they're going to be condemned, then hasn't God's word failed? And Paul says, no, much to the contrary. God's word has not failed. And here's how it is that God's word has not failed. Because from the very beginning, Paul explains that there is a purpose of God that involves a physical, external people of Israel, as well as a spiritual people of Israel. So there is a nation of Israel through which God is working and accomplishing purposes such as the bringing about of the Messiah into the world. God is working through Israel to accomplish all of those purposes. And for that, he's given them his law and his covenants and his promises and the patriarchs and working out then the birth of the Messiah through these people. But what Paul is affirming in Romans 9 is just because God has been working through this people as a whole, the whole Israelite people, that does not mean and has never meant that every single descendant of Abraham is going to be eternally saved. It's never been the case. So in other words, God's purpose hasn't failed because God's purpose from the beginning was always to save a people from within this people. That was always his purpose. Therefore, his purpose hasn't failed. And he gives illustrations of this through Isaac 
and Ishmael, and then the next generation, Jacob and Esau. And he says, Isaac and Ishmael, God made a choice. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. And he said, the promise is going to go through Isaac. And then with regard to Jacob and Esau, God made a choice. He said, the promise, my covenants, my promise, my promises to the patriarchs, it's going to run through Jacob, not Esau. And Paul explained very clearly in that passage through those examples that, that it's not ancestry. That is not how we're chosen. We're not chosen by ancestry. We're not chosen by who our parents are. We're not chosen by our worthiness of position, such as being the older in the family, because God chose the younger in the family. So it's not by normal human considerations of worthiness at all. He chose the younger instead of the older. So it's not by ancestry. It's not by parents. It's not by time of birth or birth order or other human rank or priorities. It is not by our merit or our character or our worthiness. Paul says before they were born, before they did anything good or bad, and even just to further emphasize that it has nothing to do with their works, even future foreseen works, he says it's not on the basis of works at all. So not ancestors, not, ancestors, not parents, not human rank or priority, not worthiness or character. What about future faith? He says, no, it's not on the basis of works, but it's on the basis of the one who calls. On the one who calls. As it says in Scripture, verse 13, just as it is written from the book of Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. One time, a lady came up to Charles Spurgeon and asked him about this verse, Romans 9.13. How could this be? How, how could this verse be true? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I wrestle with that so much. And Spurgeon's response to her was, yes, I've, I've wrestled with that verse myself many a time. Many a time I've been on my knees crying, wondering why in the world, how in the world God could have chosen Jacob. In other words, what startled Spurgeon was not that God passed over Esau. What startled Spurgeon was that God showed mercy to either of them and that God showed mercy to Jacob. And we talked about that last time, that, that one of the important ways to understand Romans 9, and, and essential to understanding Romans 9, is to remember that all of us, left to ourselves, are worthy of judgment. All of us, left to ourselves, are worthy of hell and condemnation. And so the question then is asked in verse 14, Paul anticipates an objection of God choosing one over the other just on the basis of his own will, on the basis of his own electing purpose, not on the basis of any human considerations at all. We call that unconditional election because there are no conditions attached to it. There are no human conditions, no human prior considerations, no human qualifications. It all arises from God and his own electing purpose. And so Paul anticipates an objection about that and he says, well, then does that mean that God is unjust? Does that mean that God is unfair? 
And Paul negates that in the strongest of terms. Not at all. May it never be. God forbid that God should be unjust. Well, how is it then that God is not unjust? And do you know how Paul answers that objection? He answers the objection very simply. So simply that it, it amazes us in that Paul doesn't go into a, a huge philosophical debate about justice and about what's right and wrong. He simply quotes the words of God himself. What is justice other than what God has said is just? Right? How could anyone else, how could any created being, how could we as human beings say to God, that is not just? Our whole concept of justice, our whole concept of what is right and wrong, our whole concept of righteousness, all of that is derivative from God. We would have no idea what righteousness or fairness or justice or right or wrong is if it were not for God and who he is and then making us in his image. And so we still have this sense of justice and fairness, even though the image of God in us is deeply marred. It's still there. And so we still have this sense of the justice of God. We wouldn't even understand what justice was if it were not for God being just. So how can we, who are very often unjust ourselves, unfair, inconsistent, deceptive, how can we then say to God, God, you're being unjust? God is the definition of justice. And all Paul does, very simply, is he quotes from Scripture. And he says, here's what God said. Verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's from Exodus 33. And the significance about that context of Exodus 33 and 34 is it is a moment in God's dealings with his people and God's dealings with Moses in which God reveals certain aspects that are fundamental to his identity and his character. Because in this context, God says to Moses, Moses had desired to see the glory of the Lord. And God says to Moses, you can't see my full glory. I'm going to put you in this hole, this cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass over. You can see my lesser glory, my back parts, if you will, but you can't see my full glory. And as I pass over you and as I reveal my glory to you, I am going to declare my name. And in the declaration of God's name, his identity, his character, this is what he said of himself. I have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, a part of Yahweh being Yahweh, of God being God, is this right to have mercy on whom he wills and compassion on whom he wills. In other words, that is inherent within the identity of who God is in himself. And so Paul draws the conclusion then in verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire 
or effort, but on God's mercy. So it's not human desire or willing what they will or what they want or what they desire or what they aim for or what they aspire to, nor is it on the basis of what they actually do in human deeds because none of it is worthy. So it's not on the basis of human willing or desiring or aspiring, nor is it on the basis of human deeds. What is it on the basis of then? God's mercy. That's the basis. God's mercy. And so God is just in his unconditional election of individuals to salvation because it is consistent with the character and revelation of God himself. Last week we talked about, is, does this passage have to do with individual salvation unto, etern, unto eternity? Or does this passage have to do with God's choice of people for purposes within history? Because one of the arguments about this passage is, God is talking about Isaac and Ishmael here. Jacob and Esau. And then in the portion of scripture that we're going to look at next, he's dealing with Pharaoh and his dealings with Israel. And the argument is, all of those situations where God made a choice of one over the other, that was about nations. That was about collective peoples. And that was about what was going to happen within history and God's purposes. So the argument goes, God wasn't dealing with individual people there, per se. He was dealing with what those individual people represented in terms of nations. So Pharaoh represents the nation of Egypt. Isaac represents the nation of Israel. Ishmael represents the Ishmaelites. Jacob represents the nation of Israel. Esau represents the Edomites. And so they, the argument is God's choosing nations for historical purposes, not individuals for eternal salvation. While in the original contexts there is some merit to that statement, that in the original context, God clearly is choosing one people over another, one nation over another in Genesis. In Exodus, he's clearly choosing the Israelites over the Egyptians. So there's a sense in which that is true. But the important thing for us to consider is, what is the context in which Paul is using those examples in Romans 9? What's his purpose in Romans 9? His purpose in Romans 9 is very clearly salvation. Because he starts out grieving over the unbelief of the Israelite people and how he was willing himself to give himself up for their salvation. As you move forward into the passage, you see that it is clearly dealing with salvation at the end of chapter 9 about those whom God has called among the Jews and the Gentiles to bring to himself. In chapter 10, it's clearly talking about salvation when it says, how will they hear without a preacher? Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. In chapter 11, by the way, Romans 9 through 11 is a unit. It's a section in which Paul is dealing with a, a, the very same issue. And in Romans chapter 11, he concludes this whole thing, this whole argument in Romans 11 verse 26 by saying, and so all Israel will be saved. So clearly he's talking about salvation. He's talking about individuals unto salvation, even though he's using these historical examples from Genesis and Exodus to prove his point. But then let's also think about this. Do you expect to see Ishmael in heaven? 
do you expect to see Esau in heaven? Do you expect to see Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in heaven? I don't. But do you expect to see Isaac and Jacob and Moses in heaven? I do. So even in their original context, you can't just say it's just about nations and peoples because the people involved are more than likely individuals and their eternal destinies were being determined at that moment. So it's not that simple. So then we come to the issue of the other side of the issue. Because if God is showing mercy on whom he wants to show mercy, and that is consistent with God's character, and that's consistent with what God has revealed about himself, well then, what about those who are not saved? What about those who do not believe? And Paul says, verse 17, For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And what's Paul's conclusion? Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. Okay, that's the same point he's already made, but now he adds another layer. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. So in other words, Paul is saying it is within the sovereign will of God to dispense compassion and mercy and grace to whom he will. And it is within the sovereign purposes of God to dispense hardening and stubbornness and obstinateness to whom he will. Now, let's think about in understanding this concept of hardening. And what God does in hardening and what this means in the context, I thought it would be helpful to think about some of the the biblical stories where this concept of divine hardening is seen. And the first place to start is where Paul starts with Pharaoh and Israel, because that's really the first place in the scripture where you see this concept of God hardening someone's heart. So you all are familiar with the story, right? We, if you were here on Sunday nights, we've been through it fairly recently, in which God rains down his plagues on Egypt. The end result of those plagues is what? So that God would rescue his people, right? Rescue his people, bring them out of slavery, bring them into the land of promise. That, that's what God was doing in those ten plagues. But why ten? Why did it take 10? Couldn't there have been a simpler way for God to do it? Sure. I mean, God could have done it much more simply. God could have done it in one fell swoop, one big, wondrous display of judgment, and Israel could have been delivered. God chose not to do it that way. And in order to be able to show the full extent of his power and his glory, and to bring full judgment and condemnation on Pharaoh and the Israelites for what they had done to Israel and how they had treated them, God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let my people go. And you think about 
But isn't that counterintuitive? Isn't that counterproductive? God isn't the goal here to get your people out of Egypt and to rescue them? God, why would you harden Pharaoh's heart to keep them there longer? Paul quotes the passage that explains it right here. Scripture says, and this comes from Exodus chapter 9, I raised you up for this very purpose. And we can include in that, I'm hardening your heart for this very purpose so that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God hardened Pharaoh's heart for several reasons. One, to bring judgment on Pharaoh in Egypt for their previous mistreatment of the Israelites and treating them like garbage and treating them like slaves and and being harsh taskmasters to them for generations. God wanted to bring judgment on them. But he also had a higher goal than that, and that was to show Pharaoh, to show Egypt, to show his people, to show the world that he was God. And that he is almighty powerful and that so that his fame and glory would spread throughout the earth. That's why he did it. And you say, well, aren't there some passages that say Pharaoh hardened his own heart? Sure are. In fact, interestingly enough, if you study that passage, you find an equal number of passages that say that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and an equal number of passages that say Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so which is true? Did God, did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? And the scriptural, the scriptural answer to that is yes. Yes. Well, which caused the other? Which, which caused the other? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart in response to Pharaoh already hardening his heart? Or did Pharaoh harden his heart in response to God hardening his heart first? The Bible doesn't lay it out that way. Does it? It doesn't specifically say. I will say this, though, that the very first indication of the fact that Pharaoh's heart is going to be hard is when God tells Moses in advance that it will happen. So at the very front of the passage is God saying, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And at the very end of the passage, the very last instance of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is God hardening his heart. So by those bookends, you could make the argument that the the hardening of Pharaoh's heart of himself is living out and fulfilling the purpose that God had already determined to do. But either way, they're consistent. The Bible presents it as Pharaoh doing what he wanted to do. Was Pharaoh going kicking and screaming in in showing disrespect and unkindness and harshness to the Israelite people? No, he was going headlong into it, wasn't he? He was fully going in the direction that he wanted to go. He wanted to be cruel. He wanted to show hostility to the Israelites. He's doing everything that he wanted to do. And so he hardened his own heart. And yet at the same time, it is exactly what God purposed to do. From eternity past. For, for Pharaoh's heart to be hardened so that he might display his power and his glory. There's another instance in the scriptures in which we see God hardening someone's heart for the sake of his people. 
This is in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. It says, But Sihon, king of Heshbon, refused to let us pass through. For the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands as he has done now. The Lord said to me, See, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. So according to Deuteronomy chapter 2, God hardened the heart of Sihon, king of, uh, uh, Sihon, king of Heshbon, so that he would come out and attack the Israelites and so that the Israelites could defeat him and conquer him and begin their conquest of the promised land. It was God accomplishing his purpose. So again, it was a pagan king being hardened for the sake of his people. Right? That's the pattern in in Exodus with Pharaoh as well as in Deuteronomy 2 with Sihon. Interestingly enough, though, we see other places in Scripture where God is going to make people stubborn and hard-hearted. One classic one is in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, and this one is startling when you read it in its context. Isaiah 6, it's the call of Isaiah. God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And so God said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. In other words, God's mission for Isaiah was to go and by proclaiming the word of God, so further harden the hearts of the Israelite people. Further close their eyes, further close their ears, further dull their minds. And here's what God says why he's doing this. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, God decided that he was going to judge the Israelite people. Why? Because they were idolatrous, because they were unjust, because they were unkind, they were oppressing the poor and the the fatherless and the widow. God was going to judge his people, and he had determined to judge them. And God is sending Isaiah to further harden them in preparation for that judgment. And that's his own people, the Israelites. Jesus, by the way, the result of that is Israel was judged, weren't they? They were judged. Ultimately, they were defeated by the Babylonians, and they went into exile. They were conquered. So God determined to judge his people and to send the Babylonians to do it. And Isaiah's role was to preach the word of God and make their hearts even more calloused to the word of God. So they would not respond and face judgment. Interestingly enough, that same passage from Isaiah 6 is quoted by Jesus of the Israelites of his day in John chapter 12. Jesus told them, this is John 12, 35, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. 
Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So the obstinateness of the Israelites in Isaiah's day, which led to the Babylonian destruction and captivity, is the exact kind of stubbornness and callousness that was going on in Jesus' day that led to their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah and the eventual destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in A.D. 70. Their blindness, their hard-heartedness, their stiff-neckedness was resulting in their judgment. Now, that's just a few key passages from the scriptures that illuminate this idea of divine hardening. What are some truths, some principles that we can draw from those passages as well as from what Paul is saying in Romans 9, 17 and 18? Number one, God hardens sovereignly. Paul says it in verse 18. He hardens whom he wants to harden. So whatever we say about divine hardening, we have to say this, that it is ultimately within the sovereign will of God. Secondly, when God hardens someone, hardens their heart, it is completely compatible with the stubbornness and hard-heartedness of that individual. Just like we saw in Pharaoh. God hardened his heart, but yes, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and he was glad to harden his own heart, wasn't he? So whatever we say about divine hardening and God's sovereignty, he sovereignly decides it, but it is fully compatible with the stubbornness and hard-heartedness that is in the heart of that individual. And they are culpable, responsible for that hard-heartedness. Thirdly, we see in these examples from Scripture that God hardens as a means of judgment, often leading to greater judgment. So divine hardening is actually a manifestation of God's judgment on a people, but often for the purposes of bringing them to greater judgment. That's what happened with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God was was judging them. He was judging them in every single one of these plagues that God was raining down on them. He was judging them and he was hardening their hearts as a part of that judgment. But it was ultimately to bring them to an even greater judgment, wasn't it? The release of the Israelites and the destruction of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. So it was judgment, but it was leading to greater judgment. Same thing with the Israelites in Isaiah's day. In Isaiah's day, the people of Israel deserved judgment. They were idolaters. They were were breaking God's covenant. They were mistreating one another. So God judged them by hardening them. And that hardening 
resulted in even greater judgment, didn't it? The fault of the Babylonians and the captivity. In Jesus' day, they were worthy of judgment. The Pharisees, sacrilegious, many of the high priestly offices and religious offices were up for sale to the highest bidder in Jesus' day. The Pharisees were hypocritical. They showed things on the outside but had no heart for God on the inside. Many of the Israelite people had already gone over to Hellenism, to, to living the Greek lifestyle and the Roman lifestyle. The history of the Israelite people is that of, of persecuting and killing the prophets. So Israel in Jesus' day was worthy of judgment. And, and so their rejection of Jesus, their hard-heartedness in their rejection of Jesus was a, was a form of judgment leading to greater judgment, which was the rejection of their Messiah and their ultimate destruction by the Romans in A.D. 70. So judgment leading to judgment. Fourthly, when God hardens some, others receive mercy. When God hardens some, others receive mercy. Think about it in the example of Pharaoh and Israel. God hardened Pharaoh who received mercy. The Israelites. There's always two sides of the coin in God's dealings with people. He judges and he saves in the same event. He judges and he saves in the same event. In the flood, he judged the world, but at the same time, he was saving Noah and his family. In Pharaoh, in the plagues, he was judging Egypt, but at the same time, he was saving Israel. So he hardened some, but he was having mercy on others in doing so. Well, what about Sihon, king of Heshbon? Well, he hardened him, but he was having mercy on the Israelites by delivering him into their hands. So they would be able to go into the promised land and conquer. What about with God's people? What about the Israelites? If God hardened the Israelites, leading to their Babylonian captivity, who is he having mercy on then? There are a couple of possibilities. One is the chosen remnant that would return to the land afterward, after the captivity. He was having mercy on them, and Isaiah prophesies that. Another possibility is that God, in hardening the Israelites and sending them into captivity, was taking the word of God and the people of God to the nations. Think about that. By dispersing them among the Assyrians and bringing them into Babylon and Babylon into captivity, guess what? The word of God came to Babylon. The word of God came to Assyria. And even after those times, there were dispersed Israelites with the word of God all across the ancient world. So he hardened some, but he had mercy on others. What about in Jesus' day? Which, by the way, when we talk about Jesus' day, I think we're essentially talking about Paul's day. So Paul wondering why all these Israelites are not believing? Well, they didn't believe Jesus either. And Paul's conclusion to that is they're being hardened as a means of judgment leading to greater judgment. But who's the ones receiving mercy now? If God is hardening Israel and they're not believing, who is his mercy falling on? The Gentiles. That's his exact argument in Romans 11. That in breaking off this branch, 
from the root of Abraham, that is the Israelites, and grafting in another branch into the root of Abraham, that is the Gentiles, by these, by the unbelief of these, there is mercy coming to these. So the unbelief of the Israelites in Jesus and Paul's day, guess what? It led to a missionary, great missionary activity among the Gentiles. And grace and mercy falling on them. So when God hardens some, others receive mercy. Here's something else that we need to consider. Fifthly, everyone whom God hardens deserves it. Everyone whom God hardens deserves it. But here's the counter. No one who receives mercy deserves it. No one who receives mercy deserves it. But everyone whom God hardens deserves it. Because we are all worthy of hardening. And the last point, sixthly, and this is expressly what Paul is quoting in Romans 9, verse 17, from Exodus 9, God hardens so as to advance his own glory and fame. God hardens so as to advance his own glory and fame. He hardened Pharaoh, why? So that his name would be proclaimed among all the earth, so that he would know that he is God, so that his people, the world, would know that Yahweh is God. What about in Paul's day? Why, how, how does this advance the glory of God? Because the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel is going out to the world. It's going out to the nations. It was the hard-heartedness and it was the rebelliousness of Jerusalem and the persecution that the early apostles started getting in Jerusalem that drove them out to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. So the hard-heartedness and the stubbornness and the rejection of Israel spread the glory and the fame of God and his gospel to the nations. God hardens so as to advance his own glory and fame. So, God is God. God is sovereign. God has mercy on whom he will. He hardens whom he will. And it's perfectly within the right of God, the sovereign God, to do that. And whatever God does is fair and just. If he were to harden everyone, it would be deserved. And there's a sense in which we're all hardened when we are born into this world. Because we're all spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. But we are fully worthy of of the judgment, the condemnation of God. Whoever God hardens deserves it. But none of us is worthy of the mercy of God. If we can fully grasp that concept, that not a single one of us is worthy of the mercy of God, then we will have understood much of Paul's point in this passage. God is sovereign, but he is infinitely merciful. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in God, we thank you and praise you that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. 
that you are the one who bestows mercy on undeserving sinners such as us. Lord, we deserved to be hardened and judged and condemned. But Lord, you softened and gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. You awakened our dead hearts. You gave us life. And Lord, that's all because of your mercy. So Lord, may we praise you. May we praise and thank and glorify you all of our days. And Lord, may we spread your fame and your glory as that is your will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.